great pleasure to be here. Obviously, um, I've been looking forward to this. Um, unfortunately, there's a couple of people that I would have liked to, to, to meet today who are not present. I uh, hope to meet them at a later point. Um, yeah, so, so I also thought about uh, changing the title uh, for this paper several, several times. Um, I decided not to change uh, anything in the title, but uh, I have changed the paper a little bit. Uh, so it deals with also other issues than, than those mentioned up here. Um, what I'm going to talk about is, is, is based on previous work, some of which has been published and some has not been published. Uh, but what I want to really sort of discuss with you today is the issue of, of, of love, uh, issues of being in love uh, and how this is being seen, experienced, discussed and debated in uh, in Mozambique and also in the literature on these uh, themes in, sort of in, 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 uh, uh, in other African uh, countries. So, okay, you probably know this very banal, popular notion of love or being in love, uh, that we cannot sleep, we cannot uh, eat or think clearly, clearly, that our mind is focused on uh, the person we want. There's an idea that this means being in love or being obsessed, or maybe perhaps even being possessed by somebody or someone. Many people in the suburbs of Maputo in the Mozambican capital insist that these are signs of being possessed, signs of witchcraft that a spell has been cast. It is well known in Maputo that women and some men use erotic magic or love magic, depending on how you look at it, to seduce and enchant each other. In Maputo, people often call this practice kotsolar. It's a Shangana expression meaning to catch somebody, but it has various other meanings. There's another expression for this in Maputo, which is to put a man in the bottle. This practice is subject to much debate and concern among men and women, particularly among men, uh, and among youth as well as their parents. Many men who behave like or who believe that they have been put in the bottle or that they have been bewitched go to the local healer in order to try and uh, break the spell and regain emotional control or, as they say, to get out of the bottle. While many people in the Western Hemisphere tend to romanticize the state of being in love and excuse the, mad the madness and anxiety that often follows as innocent or as a natural part of love and companionship, many Mozambicans are more prone to stress the danger and destructiveness of this state of mind as something made up by someone it aligns with human or spiritual others. On one of my several field trips, um, field trips to Maputo since 2007, I asked young, uh, young, a young man called Alex if his lack of sleep, anxiety, and longing for his loved one was not simply an expression of love, of amor, I said, come on, Peter, come on, sorry, come on, Alex, you're 
uh, you're just in love. And he replied, no, no, Chris, this is really bad. I cannot control myself anymore. I don't know if I'm going mad. Love, you know, he told me this, is about living together in harmony and trust, building a future together, being good to each other, wanting to, to do good things, making a sacrifice. But I sometimes feel like I want to do bad to her and to myself. I feel jealous. I don't trust her. Does she really want me? It makes me crazy. Now is this love? No, no, no. Something has been done to me, he said. Like what? I asked him. Well, witchcraft. Uh, I'm not sure. The tricks of women, you know. Maybe she did it, or her sister. I heard that she's evil. So she can put me in the bottle. Now, obviously, I don't want to argue that Mozambicans do not experience romantic love, uh, or that, uh, that it is, uh, uh, sorry, um, but I want to insist that it is common to distinguish between romantic and harmonious love and delirious, destructive love. Also, in the Western world, there's a tendency to talk about being lovesick, of course, so also we talk about being destructive when you're in love. But this is seen as largely innocent or as a necessary predecessor to harmonious love and a life of companionship. So in one perspective, delirious love is seen as a necessary evil. In another perspective, it is seen as an essentially destructive force. So let me talk a little bit about my fieldwork here. Since 2007, I've been following in the footsteps of younger women called Kuti daughters and their more wealthy partners, both local men and expats, as well as these women's less wealthy boyfriends and their families and kin. The term Kuti daughter derives from the Mozambican expression Kurtir avida, which in youth slang means to enjoy life and refers to a lifestyle of going out to bars and discotheques. The Cotidoras are a group of women who are known for going to the city center to drink, to dance, and to look for more wealthy men who can take care of them and become their lovers or boyfriends. They meet these men in nightclubs, cafes, restaurants, in shopping malls, at the beach, or other parts of public space in the rich part of inner city. As part of this process, many of them use powerful tricks to gain power and control over men, as well as to, live, uh, to win their love, dedication, and economic support. This specialized knowledge and practice called Kotsolar is often referred, uh, sorry, is often transferred from older female kin and healers to these younger women. And the female elders who train Kuchidoras in the arts of seduction and sex also expect reciprocation, especially if their daughters or nieces are able to establish a lucrative relationship. So, I argue, to put men in the bottle is often a collective female kin project. So before I return to the question of love and erotic magic, let me briefly 
address how these intimate relationships work out. Often referred to as transactional sex or sexual economies, often referred to as transactional sex or sexual economies in the literature, these relationships encompass expectations about exchanges of sexual, monetary, material, and emotional kind. But, as I argue, they contain much more and cannot be understood without seeing them as part of the broader questions about gender, power, kinship, sexuality, and exchange moralities in urban Africa. The men with whom Cotidoras engaged are often referred to as patrocinadores, meaning sponsors or donors, because they shower the young, uh, the young women uh, with gifts and support uh, and stay with them for shorter or longer periods. Some of them are local big men in business, politics, or generally in these women's neighborhoods. Others are expats migrating to Maputo as businessmen, development workers, and diplomats. And most of them come from Europe, North America, and South Africa. Cultidores who have steady sponsors usually meet to have sex with them in uh, out-of-the-way places like hotels, men's private homes, and beach resorts to avoid having neighbors and families see them together. The benefits of having a sponsor include access to luxuries such as fashionable clothes, mobile phones, and money to spend in the nightclubs. Some daughters get the opportunity to travel with partners to richer countries. People often told stories of women who had moved to Europe with their partners as lovers, as wife, or even as sex workers, and who returned with money and a good education. But there were also stories of abuse, loneliness, and shattered dreams. Many daughters negotiate with their men about receiving a monthly allow allowance, which they call a mesada, which is transferred then to their bank account so that they can dispose of uh, the money as they wish. The mesada that a cotidora receives ranges from $200 to $3,000 a month. Depending on the number of partner, partners and the steadiness of the relationships, in the case of a one-night stand or more casual relationships, Cotidoras either ask for payment after each sexual encounter or convince the partner to pay for acute expenses such as medicine to a sick relative, school tuition fees, or a new dress for an upcoming party. Sexual relationships with white men are often more lucrative than those with local Mozambican men, but some women have relationships with both with men in both groups. So to what extent do these relationships, exchanges, and erotic practices challenge Western notions of love and gender? To what extent is being in love an innocent affair a result of chemistry and a beautiful expression of destiny to be celebrated in songs, movies, and novels? Consumed in Western countries, and to what extent can this emotional state be seen as an effect of intimacy, desire, 
spirits and illicit practices that are far from innocent or disinterested. A question which is related to this is, to what extent are these relationships marked by gender inequality and female subordination? Can we understand the exchange of sex, money and emotions in these relationships as something else and something more than commoditization, exploitation and patriarchal privilege? In order to discuss these questions, let me give you some examples from fieldwork and interviews with expat men with the Kutz daughters and their female kin. So this is the story of Lucia and Peter. Lucia, who had recently dropped out of secondary school, was 22 years old when she bumped into 51-year-old Peter at a bar in downtown Maputo. Peter was a Norwegian development worker eager to make a difference in one of Africa's poorest countries. When I met Peter in a bar, he was out of his mind. He told me that he began to drink one month before and had sold his, his big car in order to pay for a piece of land that Lucia and her family asked for. They said they wanted this as a sign of his love, to know that he was serious about the relationship. Basically, he told me, I just feel like I want to help. Lucia is poor, you know. She never had the opportunity that I can give her now. And he added, she's my personal development project. I will invest everything in her. But, he said, it's getting out of hand. I can no longer see clearly. Is she playing me? He wondered, because he's seen her with other men and she refused to tell him about her whereabouts. At some point, he decided to do what many local men do when being madly in love. He went to the local healer to get help. He asked the healer to cure his sadness and his madness and to help him basically survive as he was getting uh, thinner and thinner from not e eating or sleeping properly. The, the healer told him to go to his home, home country, to return to his home country, to find comfort among friends and family. Much like Mozambican men who are obsessed by a woman are advised to go to a village in the ancestral land and often apply ancestral spirits as a shield against the spiritual force that attack them and hold them hostage emotionally. Isolation from and distance to the object of one's obsession is seen as essential. In Peter's case, it was meant to break his unhealthy attachment to Lucia and hopefully make him sane enough to either forget her and get on with, it, with his life or to regain powers so he could return to Mozambique and negotiate a marriage proposal. Peter himself was clearly torn between the, the Western discourse of being in love and Mozambican notions of erotic magic or love magic or even witchcraft. Being in Mozambique, he told me, he just couldn't rule out that, that this was an expression of witchcraft, which he had heard so much about. So not only do local men discuss and fear women's erotic powers, so do white men. 
Ever so often, they would sit in the bar discussing the danger of black beauties. They're saying, once you go black, you never go back. This often applied to mean that having sex with African women will make you hooked to an extent where you can no longer decide who you want to be with or what you want to do. What is clear here, what came clear after a while, was that both women and men share these strong notions, uh, share these, say these notions of men as weak and women as strong in the game of love, lust, and eroticism. Lucy emphasized, as did many other daughters, that men are emotionally weaker and softer in the field of intimacy and sex. She told me that, well, these men, they lose their mind easier, and thus they're easier to control, but they are also very unpredictable. Sometimes they might become violent. Sometimes they may become so weak that they are utterly useless or even crippled. Peter, Lucia told me, was an example of this. He was drinking, he was going downhill. At the same time, daughters are acutely aware that they must protect themselves from falling in love in order to stay in control and to keep the upper hand vis-a-vis the sponsors. So, is the woman the stronger gender when it comes to sex, or in particular, transactional sex? Obviously, this would be an exaggeration, since many other elements of power shape these relationships, such as age difference and hierarchies related to incomes, to race, nationality, and other factors. Women do not, in a broader sense, have the upper hand in these relationships. However, sex is seen as a particularly privileged resource, and women are seen as possessing a highly gendered force when it comes to using eroticism to extract money from men, as witnessed also by the metaphors of extraction, such as skinning the goat, milking men, or drinking men's money, known from other Southern African countries like Malawi, Zambia, and South Africa. Yet, as I will show, using this privilege productively and with success cannot be done by the daughters themselves. Indeed, their extractive practices are developed and put to use in close collaboration with female kin and their families, who also eventually benefit from their transactional relationships. When I sat and talked with the daughters' family members in their homes, I often noticed a clear generational hierarchy between the younger women and the female seniors. daughters acted more restrained and were less talkative than when we met in the city. I noticed a strong emotional tie between female relatives, which did not seem to exist between male and female kin to the same extent. The majority of daughters admitted that they felt indebted to their female seniors, seniors, especially within the household and with regard to spiritual issues, whereas male seniors were seen as more marginal in domestic affairs. This gender division of households reflects what Ifi Amadiumi described in her study of gender dynamics 
of the Nobi in eastern Nigeria, where she observed, and I quote, a strong matri-focality and female orientation in which mother and children form distinct, distinct economically self-sufficient sub-compound units. The logic of reciprocity between young, uh, end of quote, sorry, the logic of reciprocity between young and older female kin in the poor suburbs of Maputo was tied to such matrifocal principles. The mother and other female kin are the primary caretakers and educators of girls in all matters of life throughout childhood, and daughters collaborate with their mothers in domestic and income-generating activities. When girls reach puberty, they are taught certain forms of knowledge which are presented to them by more powerful female seniors as the arts of becoming a woman, or as kotsola, as I mentioned, meaning catching men or putting men in the bottle. As I argue, the erotic knowledge that female elders transmit to daughters and nieces is transformed into bodily capacities that women use to seduce possible sponsors. When emotional bonds have been established between them, or they have had sex, a quarter daughter expects to receive money, gifts, and support from the man. Not receiving monetary reciprocation from a man is regarded as cynical, sometimes even seen as abuse or exploitation. And just to give you one example of that, um, I had an informant who, um, who came to me one night and uh, talked about her relationship to uh, uh, um, a sponsor. And she was really frustrated uh, because, as she said, she felt like she had been abused. And I asked, what do you mean? She said, well, um, we, ha we had sex. He was a really lovely guy. Um, but in the end, he didn't want to see me. And also, he didn't give me any gifts. He didn't give me anything in return. Is that a problem? Yes, it means he's been cynical. If he understood me, if he really liked me, he would have given me something. He, know that I'm, he knows that I'm poor. He knows that I need money. So, of course, what she was expressing here is sort of the opposite sort of logic that we have when it comes to, to, to prostitution, where giving money in exchange for sex is seen as uh, essentially morally wrong, whereas here... It's the opposite. If you do not give anything in return for sex, that would be uh, morally problematic. Um, okay. So, the money that daughters earn is used to cover nightlife expenses and other necessities. The rest of the money is then distributed among female kin, elders, mothers, aunts, and older sisters use this money to buy food, medicine, and clothes for the children, and the male members, and sometimes to the male members of the extended family, and often save some of it, some of it for harder times, or to invest in housing or transport. In cosmological terms, the exchange also serves to satisfy ancestral spirits, who are seen as masters of life and death, and from whom elders derive their authority and knowledge, even the Kotsalab. The elders are seen as living representatives of ancestral spirits who have the generative powers to assist 
in the birth of new family members, as well as in the production of wealth and success. So erotic powers are reproduced within a, a female space, where secret knowledge is passed on from older to younger women. The female space is separated from the male space of husbands and uncles, who traditionally are not allowed access to or who, do, who are uh, told not to, uh, to interfere with women's secrets. The sponsor is also strictly cut off from this female space, where secrets are kept and exchanged, of course, and I'll be ready to talk about that later, how did I get access to this knowledge, being a man, it's a long discussion, worth a long discussion, we can have that later. Um, Sadia, a 22-year-old woman, explained to me what putting, in a, putting a man in a bottle can imply, and I quote, The other night, when I seduced him in bed, he promised that he would stay with me and pay so I can stay in this apartment and help my nieces, who are often sick. My sister and my aunt also helped me, and the female healer. She gave us the, these herbs that I rub into my body. My aunt always told me, if you put a man in the bottle, he would go nowhere without you. In fact, there was no consensus among informants about the process leading up to uh, putting a man in the bottle and what putting men in the bottle implies. Nevertheless, in general terms, women agreed that the process can be divided into the following steps or levels. The first step is the seduction of men and the evoking of men's desire. This involves a woman being seen by men in public and making a desired partner become sexually interested in her. The second step involves the satisfaction of men in private space by using various bodily, sexual and sensual elements, including good hygiene, maintenance of a beautiful body and smooth skin, special body movements, vaginal contractions, and possibly the application of spiritual and magical elements, like love potions and charms, regarded as highly secret and sacred knowledge deriving from the world of ancestors. The transmission of erotic knowledge begins after the girl has a first period and continues at least until she gets married. Which types of the above-mentioned erotic knowledge are taught and in what combination they are used depend on the religion and faith of the instructor relative and the extent to which the instructor acknowledges or refuses to accept the existence or legitimacy of traditional knowledge, power, and magic. When a girl has her first uh, period, her mother, who is normally not allowed, um, not allowed to be an instructor, calls an aunt or sometimes someone else in the extended family, uh, and this person takes the girl to a house of relatives outside of the city where she can introduce the girl to her new life as a woman. If the girl is thought to have special needs, or if no female relatives are gifted enough to prepare the session, the mother brings the girl to a female healer who can educate her. Different tricks and skills are presented to the girl as a way to take care of herself, to achieve pleasure, and to understand how men think. And she is taught 
to use the power of sex with caution. Instructors and initiates often speak the local language of Shangana or Ronga during these sessions, or any other language of the ancestors from whom the knowledge derives. The, trans the transmission is mostly oral, but can also involve role play in which the initiate, the instructor, and a niece or a sister are present. In such sessions, the women are permitted to speak freely about uh, sex, satisfaction, and orgasm. Kuti daughters were seen as very attractive by the sponsors and other men, whether of Western or Mozambican background. And they were often well aware of their value as attractive women, and so were their kin, who helped them maintain and improve their magnetic qualities. Kuti daughters' power to extract money from men was closely associated with their ability to appear, as they said, taponeka, in Shangana, and as a consequence, to be seen and wanted by men. Some applied special creams to their body or washed themselves in herbs or applied herbs to their lipstick. Um, this was a very sort of special uh, trick where they cut the herbs into tiny, tiny pieces, put it on lipstick, and then for some reason the men were supposed to just be completely attracted by seeing this um, for example, in the bars or the discotheques. Combined with more profane beautification practices like putting on hair extensions and fashionable clothes, this was believed to have a powerful effect toward attracting men. Although older women from different suburbs told me that such practices uh, or uh, admitted that such practices are, getting, uh, are gaining popularity, they also insisted that transmission of such erotic knowledge from elders to initiates is far from a recent phenomenon. This can perhaps be confirmed by Henri Chinot's classic book, The Life of a South African Tribe. Writing about initiation rituals and love charms among the Tonga in southern Mozambique, he notes that what he calls physicians help young women to appear to male peers by using, and I quote, a certain medicine which produces an abundant leather when boiled in water. The physician washes the girl's body with it, after which she will appear, a taponeka, to the eyes of would-be suitors, end of quote. The physician that Junot mentions was a female instructor who, he adds, was responsible for ensuring that herbs and medicines had the desired effect on a man. Chinook's work, I think, illustrates that the belief in women's erotic powers has indeed deep historical roots. If the process of seducing men in public is the first stage in putting men in the bottle, the second stage consists in applying erotic knowledge in the private space of bodily intimacy. Female can introduce dollars to the powers of creams and herbs that can be applied to the vagina and other body parts before intercourse. Together with the effect of herbs, they believe that the vaginal contractions will suck the energy from the man's penis so that he will become soft 
and thus more generous. This idea is quite consistent with Tonka cosmology, in which sex and bodily heat have the generative potential to create wealth and to soften the male organ and mind. This is probably one reason why women talked about sex as sucking energy or as milking men. For herbs and creams to have their full effect during intercourse, there must be a free exchange of body fluids. Mirroring the continuity between bodies within a collective life-giving cosmology. For that reason, of course, condom use was out of the question. In order for these herbs, etc., to have full effect. In discussions of the pleasure of sex, some Kutidoras admitted that their focus was on satisfying the male partners. Because, as they said, if they themselves got too much pleasure out of it, they might lose control over the situation. Other informants told me that they felt sexually and emotionally at ease with sponsors because the men were good and sensitive lovers who gave them attention, pleasure and a sense of safety. Others ascribed pleasure in bed to the very feeling of having the power in an almost literal sense to control and milk them for money. The most secretive level, if you will, of putting men in the bottle concerns the use of aphrodisiacs, love potions, and the placement of charms. The young women told me how a mother or assistant or a sister had taught them to prepare a special soup that can be served to a partner. The idea is that the man is affected in a desired way when he drinks the substance. Because of their presumed aphrodisiac aphrodisical effects, these love potions were uh, thought to work most effectively if served prior to the women making her advances towards the man or just before having intercourse. Another strategy for putting a man in the bottle was to leave charms like a necklace, a ring or a bodily substance in the man's possession. The placement of charms was seen as a powerful trick because the spirit of the person who owns the object is believed to cling to it and to work on the man even when he is traveling to far, far away places, as the mother of one Kotidora explained. The man, she told me, will experience an attraction to the girl who owns the item, especially when he is close to it. All of these erotic practices are thought to have the combined effects of making a man emotionally and sexually dependent on the woman who performs them. Okay. From one perspective, transactional sex across Africa may be interpreted as a sign of women succumbing to men's monetary capabilities and thus as an expression of gender inequality and patriarchal privilege. But if these sexual monetary exchanges are seen as part of a larger system of reciprocity and female eroticism, as well as from a post-colonial feminist perspective, another picture may evolve of women who, with the help of their female friends and kin, actively choose men with a big wallet. In his study of young men and women in the highly commoditized and impoverished sexual economy, of Dakar in Senegal, Francis Namjo portrays female agency 
as overshadowed by uh, generalized promiscuity. This promiscuity, he asserts, he asserts, has evolved as part of a desperate search for commodities by people who themselves seem to have become commoditized. When people are gripped by the prospects of accumulating wealth with little effort, in a context where work and income are lacking, consumption becomes an indicator of achievement. In this consumer culture, young women shop up for consumer opportunities by engaging with sugar daddies, who then shop down for the rarest and juiciest female bodies. While Leomdio's portrait of young women's sexual strategies in Dakar is one that resonates with the situation in urban Mozambique, there also seem to be remarkable differences. <coughs> the fetishisms involved in the Senegalese diskettes, sex for mobile phones, and the theos, uh, economic exploitation of women, are solely financial. The potentially spiritual or erotically powerful elements of female engagement in these relationships are either absent or downplayed. So while the sexual practice of the diskettes in Dakar appear to be almost completely driven by capitalist and patriarchal forces, the power of the Cotidoras in Maputo appears to be <coughs> solidly rooted in intergenerational and matri-central alliances with female kin, kin and female healers. Cotidoras, I argue, <coughs> show that we need to be open towards aspects of kinship, intergenerational alliances, female exchanges, and cultural institutions that are not just tools for capitalist consumption, but which can in fact also imply redistribution and social reproduction. I'd like to note here also that Kutudoras cannot just be seen as agents who are cynically taking money from men or exploiting men they also become, become dependent on the men's company and support and feel obliged to be with them. The exchanges within these emotionally charged relationships occur in a highly unstable field which can perhaps best be captured by the logic of dangerous or delirious love than by the marketesque language of transactional sex. The young women knew that they were not immune to the effects of eroticism. For example, they often struggled to control their emotions so that they did not become weak, docile, or give in to love. The most feared consequence of doing so would be to suddenly forget themselves and their families because of their desire for a man. Their indebtedness to a beloved partner might slowly move them to favor him over the family, to whom, as one informant said, one owes everything. And this might lead to retribution from the ancestral spirits. Female informants also explained that a woman should avoid falling in love because this could make her too emotionally dependent on the man and the man might back out of the relationship. So the notion here is, the idea is that the woman loses control over the man's emotion, emotions when she falls in love with him. 
So the fundamental problem with being obsessed or falling in love in Mozambique, I argue, is that one forgets one's most important and fundamental social ties and obligations to family and ancestors. This is perhaps, perhaps uh, the secret of Kotsular, and this is probably also why men, especially expat men, are particularly vulnerable to falling in love. Thank you.